Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators podcast. I'm your host, Gene Signorini, and I'm excited for today's episode. Today's guest is a communicator, creator, and connector, a woman who balances it all and truly understands frontline workers. She's former editor-in-chief of Field Technologies Magazine and Field Technologies Online, and is the creator, field service evangelist, and podcast host at The Future of Field Service. She currently serves as Vice President of Customer Advocacy at IFS. So today, we're turning the tables a bit, and the host turns into guest and subject matter expert, and she's most certainly fits the bill in that category. So I'd like to welcome Sarah Nicastro to the show. Sarah, thanks for taking the time today. Hi, Gene. Thanks for having me. So this is that. This oh, is definitely a, a difference for me in in being being interviewed instead of doing the interview. So. Well, I hope I hope it's a uh, an enjoyable experience for you. I'll try to take it easy. All right. Um, uh, but you know, I, I know you've spent you know an awful lot of time in your career looking at technologies and more importantly how technologies impact the front line mm-hmm. and frontline workers. And I'd really like to start off by asking you kind of a big picture question, which is. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's there's a number of challenges, but I think that they all sort of bubble up to the biggest, which is that there is just an immense amount of change taking place. So if you think about the individual frontline worker themselves, um, you know, they're, they're caught in sort of this sea of change, you know, whether it's business strategy or technology use or what their role looks like or who they're working alongside, you know, there's a lot of different things at play that all um, equate to just uh, a lot of, of evolution in um, what their day-to-day looks like. And, you know, we know as human beings, change is not always easy. Uh, and so, you know, while the change may very well be good change, it can still be very challenging. So let's pull on that string a little bit um, mm-hmm. because there's there's probably different elements of change that is happening, right? There's technological change. There's obviously other factors happening, you know, in a, in a post-pandemic world or if we're even in a post-pandemic world yet. But um, talk a little bit about you know, what you see as kind of those key factors that are, are really impacting now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, let's touch on the pandemic first, and, and we'll try and get that out of the way and, and um, you know, focus on some of the others, you know, that in and of itself has just been an incredibly taxing um, time for all of us as human beings. And so, you know, I, I know that you're you're looking at frontline workers across a variety of different industries. And so that, you know, impact and what that might have been like varies obviously industry to industry, person to person. Um, but I do think that, you know, business leaders need to um, 
keep the perspective of what all of us collectively have gone through as humans, you know, over the last uh, 16, 17 months, um, and just understand how that compounds this sort of weariness of all of the change, right? Um, it's been a, a super stressful time, uh, a very emotional time. And so when, when you combine that with some of the other change factors that are taking place in, in the workplace that I'll talk about next, um, you know, it just adds a, a layer of, of, you know, overwhelm or weariness. So, you know, hopefully to your point, we are moving into the post-pandemic uh, time and, and, you know, people will recover and, and heal from that. But I think it is an important point in terms of understanding, you know, how that adds a layer to, you know, everything else that's going on. Um, putting that aside, I, you know, I think that Again, you know, our audience at Future of Field Service is, is horizontal, so it reaches across a number of industries. So I, I always try and look at the big picture. Um, but I think regardless of industry, most are in some form of evolution. So whether that's, you know, a manufacturer that's in the midst of servitizing their business, whether it's a pure play service provider that is moving toward, you know, the idea of delivering outcomes instead of transactional service, um, there's sort of this, this business model, this strategic shift. Uh, and I think that that's probably the biggest change factor in the sense of it directly impacts in many instances what the role of the frontline worker is. Um, so, you know, in a service organization where traditionally that person was just responsible for a break fix um, scenario, and, and now they might be you know, evolving to be more responsible for, you know, customer relationships and, and having, you know, soft skills and, and things that they're just not used to, you know, that is a big change. Um, you know, the other is, is obviously technologically, right? As companies continue to digitally transform, there's, you know, new tool after new tool that gets introduced. Um, and, in the best case, they're done well and pragmatically and cohesively, uh, and that's still a lot. Uh, and in many cases, you know, it's not quite that smooth, and that you know also introduces some complexity. Um, so I think those are the big two, and it's compounded by just the pace, right? So the pace of change change continues to increase, um, you know, while all of this is taking place, and it. You know, if you just think about it from their perspective, it could kind of make your head spin. Yeah. So what is what's driving the change? What's driving at least the acceleration of the change among the customers or, you know, people you're talking to, in, you know, in that kind of field service horizontal? Mm hmm. Well, the first is just customer expectation, right? Yep. So, you know, you hear all the time the examples of Uber and Amazon and, you know, um, consumers of, of things and of services are just quite accustomed at this point to instant gratification, um, to constant flow of information. And so some of the historical service practices, you know, just seem quite outdated at this point. And so part of, of what's going on is companies trying to match the level of experience that a customer can get in a consumer environment um, with, you know, their business. Uh, so, so that's certainly one. Um, and that's driven a lot by technology, right? So, you know, those 
experiences and those expectations would not be possible if uh, if technology hadn't advanced the way that it has. And so, um, you know, that it's it's almost like they fuel each other, yep. right? Technology innovates, it, it, it shifts and changes the customer expectation. Those expectations get, you know, uh, more demanding and then, you know, it, it just kind of continues. And so, um, you know, I, I think, I don't want to say the the pace is you know so fast that people can't catch up and stay caught up, but I think we are at a point where a lot of these businesses are trying to get to that point of creating a modern um, you know business structure and technological foundation so that they can keep pace with the change instead of trying to catch up to the change. Yeah, it's really interesting. I love how you kind of talked about the cyclical effect of that. And I guess it can be either a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle, depending on, you know, how you look at it. Um, I guess the virtuous aspect of it is it is, I think, you know, accelerating how companies are thinking and reacting to their customers, right, or at mm -hmm. least trying to meet those expectations. The vicious cycle of it could be, as you're saying, there's, you know, changes in customer expectations, leads to changes in technologies and even, you know, business processes and business practices. And that all comes down on the heads of your frontline workers, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how, how do you think, how well do you think companies are managing that change for the workers themselves? Well, um, I think the answer to that question goes back to what you just uh, said, and it's whether they view that cycle as virtuous or as vicious, right? So I think the the reaction to the change um, depends a whole lot on how the leadership of the organization perceives it, you know, whether they're looking at it as a massive opportunity and something that, you know, they can get excited about something they they see as big potential for the business, something that um, they can articulate, you know, into a message to their workforce of, hey, this is great, you know, this is exciting, and and here's why you should be pumped. Here's why we need you um, to to bring this to life, um, and and in those situations, even with that perspective there's still a lot of things that that can go awry right um because you just there's a lot of layers of complexity here and so even with uh, a positive attitude and and strong leadership that wants to drive an innovative culture uh there's still a lot of hurdles to to overcome um the for a leader that looks at that as vicious i mean you're just really you know, leading by example with the perspective of woe is us, you know, this is annoying, frustrating, this is, um, you know, we just want to do things the way we've always done, it's worked for this long, why should we need to change? Uh, and an attitude like that, you know, will trickle down uh, throughout the business. Um, and so there's, you know, there's enough resistance to change just based on, you know, human, human nature. Uh, when you have leadership that really isn't embracing the opportunity that's being presented, then, you know, that just sort of fuels the fire of that resistance and, and um, you know, pessimism. And, you know, it just, 
certainly is not is not a good thing. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I, I like how you kind of talked about that because obviously there's different levels of, of change management and we tend to think of change management as kind of the basic blocking and tackling in a lot of ways, which is, you know, how do we effectively roll out technologies? How do we make sure that they they work well? How do we make sure people are trained and comfortable with them? But I think you've talked a lot about the other element of it, which which doesn't surprise me because you do have a bachelor's in psychology. So you're, mm -hmm. you're talking a lot about the psychological aspects and the impacts on those frontline workers as well. And, you know, to me, it seems that that's probably something that is, is, I mean, I think in general change management gets overlooked, but certainly mm -hmm. the psychological aspects of it uh, or the, you know, the anxiety could potentially cause people gets overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, change management is is a topic that frustrates me because it's been talked about you know to death um but it still gets ignored or under prioritized or you know as soon as a, a budget for uh, an initiative gets cut that's the first thing that gets you know ignored and so i think there's this discussion of the criticality of change management without, in a lot of cases, a lot of action behind it. Um, and so, you know, I, I think in so many cases, if companies just viewed change management as an imperative and looked at it a little bit differently, they would set themselves up for so much success. You know, the conversations that I have when companies are struggling or failing at, you know, whether it's a, a a business model change or a technology change, it almost always relates back to buy-in, acceptance, and change management. And so when you just, you know, you don't have to have a bachelor's degree in psychology to understand. <laughs> if you just take a minute to put yourself in the shoes of the frontline worker, you know, there's a lot of things happening if you just take technology for an example you know all of the conversation around automation and ai and machine learning that causes this sense of fear within the workforce that their jobs are going to be taken from them um and so how then would you expect them to react to the introduction of those things you know and so I think sometimes business leaders are moving so fast toward a strategy or a vision that they just don't take the time to consider that psychological impact. Um, if you do, and when you can, you understand the fact that a little bit of reassurance in the form of articulating to those frontline workers how they fit into this new world and this new vision can make a world of difference. You know, I mean, it, it's really just letting those folks know that, you know, yes, AI might take this subset of your responsibility and automate it, but that will then give you the latitude to do this new thing or to, to do these tasks, you know? So it isn't a matter of taking your job. It's a matter of elevating the value that you bring to the business, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, I, I think you hit on a very good point because I think there's this, you know, perhaps too easy of a, uh, of an excuse that people say is, oh, the, you know, the field is reluctant. They're always reluctant. They're always pushing back on technology. They don't want to learn anything new. But the reality is it, it comes from a, a place of anxiety in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. right? And even the notion of redefining someone's job, right? Mm -hmm. um, even if that could mean greater things is still um, something that, that will cause that anxiety. So right. 
I, you know, I, I do think it's, it's something that, that we've seen as well. You know, the other thing, Sarah, that we've seen is it almost seems that in order to get companies become very aware of change management after they've done it poorly once and <laughs> or not at all again, right <laughs> yeah. or you know what i mean is is yeah. we've seen companies who've gone through a, a major transformation project in the past and now they're coming back and they're doing a new one or refreshing it and they've got the battle scars from mm -hmm. the past right so the unfortunate thing is a lot of companies go into it um i think naively you know, mm -hmm. thinking that they've got all the boxes checked when they don't. Mm -hmm. And then the next time around, either a, the, 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 the project or the, the initiative fails, right. And they've got to go back and redo it. Or the next time they go back to refresh, they said, yeah, we've got to figure out a better way to kind of do this. Mm -hmm. I wanted to just mention, Gene, you know, we talked about anxiety and that yeah. being an emotion among frontline workers that folks need to take into consideration. I think the other is, um, frustration in not having their voice valued, yeah. right? So I want to think about this a couple of ways. So when you look at change management gone wrong, one of the things that, that commonly gets brought up is that the company didn't do a good enough job getting input and feedback from the front line. Okay. Um, and so if you think about that in the sense of, of, introduction of a new technology, you know, it's fairly straightforward, right? So yes, it would make sense that if, if they're the ones ultimately using the tool, um, they should be a part of the process early on. They should be able to help, um, you know, put together the, uh, the objectives and the, um, you know, checklist of, of what's necessary. They should be able to provide early feedback, you know, you should, as a leader, you should value that input because there's no one better equipped to help you get it right the first time, right? But if you look at, at some of the change that's happening around strategic use of service and business transformation, so whether that's servitization or outcomes-based service, that voice is, is even more important because they are often the people that are closest to the customers, right? And so you know, there's this disregard for this incredibly valuable input that your frontline workforce can provide either in your, your technology projects or in your business strategy um, and development of, you know, your new value proposition or new service offerings. And I think that a company's failure to recognize exactly how knowledgeable their frontline is creates this sense of frustration and resentment that certainly doesn't help with a change initiative, right? Because instead of saying, wow, they came to me and asked what I think because they view me as an important resource to the company, as a, as a part of the team, you know, they're left thinking like, well, what the heck, you know, like I'm the one working with the customers every day and, and some leader at the top who isn't is dictating, you know, where we're taking the business. And, and if that's, you know, a centimeter off of what they think it should be, you know, it fuels this sense of, of um, you know, just frustration and resentment that then makes them not want to get on board with what's taking place. Right. So I think there's the, the point of, Consider how change might create anxiety um, among your, your frontline and make sure that you're communicating early and often why they don't need to be anxious or have fear. 
but then also understand the value of their voice in the full extent to which it can be leveraged for your business. And the more you can make them feel a part of strategic decisions and um, you know, the evolution of service offerings and the introduction of technology, you know, the better off you'll be. Yeah. And it, that goes back to your, one of the first points you made, right. Which is what is driving the change is customer expectations. And like you said, I mean, that's why we call them frontline workers is because mm -hmm. they are on the front lines. They're working with customers. And I think, you know, um, in many ways, you know, these workers are probably wanting more, more change in some ways, because, mm -hmm they're the ones who are getting getting pulled and asked by customers for um, some of these some of these newer initiatives. So mm -hmm. I, I think your point is your, your point is um, is dead on. You know, I, I want to go back. You, you, you made um, a reference to the future field service and, and I mentioned it in your introduction, but I'd, mm -hmm. I'd love to kind of have you talk a little bit more about what you're doing there, how, how and why you got it started. Um, mm -hmm you know, the, 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 the digital platform and, and the podcast as well. We'd just love mm -hmm. to hear more about it. Yeah. So as you mentioned, when you introduced me, I spent uh, quite a long time um, as the editor-in-chief of Field Technologies. Uh, and um, I always tell the story that when I started with Field Technologies, I, I didn't know what field service was. Um, and then even once I did, I really didn't have a huge intention of, of sticking around. This wasn't really an, an industry that I thought I would build a career in. Um, but I think that at the time that I started, um, you know, and, and the entire time I've been in this space, the content that I've created is, is almost entirely interview-based, right? So, I mean, for now, I don't know, 14 years, I've been interviewing um, service leaders and, and you know, business leaders uh, daily, right? So it's, it's a lot of perspective on what's happening. Uh, and I think that I, I just started that at a time where there was just a lot of this initial shift and change underway. It was really sort of the beginning of the conversation of perceiving service as a, as a potential profit center instead of a cost center. And I just got hooked. I got really interested in it and, and I love the conversations I was having. And so found myself uh, at Field Technologies for um, I think almost 12 years. And so um, I was uh, approached by uh, Marnie Martin, who is the, the president uh, of service management at IFS. Um, and uh, she reached out to me shortly after she joined. Um, with this concept of creating uh, what became Future of Field Service. And, and the idea behind it is that, you know, IFS, who's um, a software provider in, in this space um, uh, across field service management, um, asset management, uh, logistics, et cetera, um, you know, really understood that, you know, service pre presented a significant opportunity for IFS, but, you know, the, the level of change and evolution um, within the community just warrants more than you know the the standard um, vendor white paper, if you will, yeah. right? And so it, it it needed a conversation not just about how does software um, play a part in this whole puzzle, but the whole puzzle itself, right? And I think um, the idea was that you know, we would um, create Future of Field Service to be a thought leadership platform for the, the service community in a way that 
expanded the conversation beyond what a software vendor would typically be discussing. Um, so it's created in partnership with IFS um, and uh, it was created from, from the ground up. Um, I was very, very excited to bring to life the podcast. That was something I had been interested in doing um, for a long time because, you know, I, I like to write, but there is a certain pressure of taking a really good interview and articulating that all in a written piece. And so the idea of being able to have conversations that people could be a part of, I thought was really cool. Um, so created a future of field service. Um, we publish two articles a week and one podcast a week. Um, and it's, uh, um, it, it, the content looks at sort of, like I said, the, the bigger picture of all of these things that's happening in service uh, across industries, um, across the globe. What are some of the, the major trends and themes? What are the drivers? What are the challenges? Um, and you know, how are companies both um, triumphing and, and what trials are they facing, right? Um, as, as I built Future of Field Service out, I saw this huge opportunity to leverage what was initially created to be a content platform to create more of a community um, within the IFS customer base. So that's where customer advocacy came into play. Um, and so in addition to, um, to running Future of Field Service, I also have uh, a network of um, about 35 uh, IFS customers that are um, across the globe, all focused on you know, better leveraging service within their businesses. Um, and we uh, get together um, every other week and talk about all sorts of different things. So it's really taking the content platform and, and using it uh, to build a, a community where we can build collective knowledge and you know, they can really help each other along uh, these journeys. And so um, that's something I enjoy quite a bit as well. So I, I think it's great because, you know, I mean, the title of our podcast is Frontline Innovators, right? And mm -hmm. I think it is, you know, one of the things that I've observed in years working with customers and large enterprise customers is that you are so consumed by your own company and the mm -hmm. complexities and the size of that, that, you know, you're, you're, you, you don't have that view of what is happening on the outside, either best practices mm -hmm. from other companies or the technologies that are available. Um, and I think it, it takes, uh, you know, that ability to kind of extract a bit Mm -hmm. from what you're doing in your own world to really kind of to, to help innovate and, and co-innovate either in reality or really just collaborate or, or talking to other people. So I, I think it's a fantastic platform for that. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think it's um, I would challenge any vendor in this space. Right. So um, and this is kind of, you know, what I, I came into IFS with and um, I have so much respect uh, for the company for understanding um, the importance of building something like Future Field Service and for trusting me to do it. But, you know, what I, I challenged them with from the very beginning is this idea that what you just said is right. It's also true, though, for the vendor community. Yep. So a, a creator of software. So that that's IFS and all of the others. Right. I saw this my whole career. Um, their world is that one piece, right? So that piece can be an instrumental, critical, foundational piece to a customer. 
but it is still just one piece of the bigger puzzle. And so when you expand your view out to the context of what is happening within these businesses, it gives you incredibly valuable perspective on, you know, what they're up against. Um, and the fact that there is no software in the world that can solve all of these problems. You know, it's a major enabler. It's, it's a critical enabler at this point, but there's so much more to it. And I think that the more the vendor community can expand its own awareness of the um, context of the business landscape, you know, the better they understand the, the challenges and objectives that their customers have. Um, and so, you know, that's another uh, thing that we've been able to do with Future Field Service is just create a resource that not only provides immense value to the service community, but that, you know, IFSers can read the content and just glean this, you know, context and, and further insight of what the industry is, is working towards and where companies are going. Um, and to your point, you know, from uh, the customer community standpoint, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's so much feedback that there's nothing more valuable than just being able to set aside a little bit of time from a busy week and sit down with some peers and just have some good conversations. And you never know where the light bulb moments are going to happen that you can take back into your own initiatives and, and make some, some big impact. So you mentioned one of the, the, um, the trends that you've mentioned a couple of times, and I'm sure that you explore in depth in the future field service is servitization. Mm -hmm. uh, is, am I saying it right? Servitization. Mm -hmm. um, can you expand on that a little bit? Maybe I think some folks in our audience probably aren't familiar with that term or what the implications are or why it's happening. Sure. So the idea of servit servitization is really just um, at the root, looking at the role service can play in being a strategic differentiator and a revenue generator for the company. So manufacturing, I think, is the industry in which the term servitization is used the most. And it's the idea of you know, a company that has historically um, created, uh, manufactured, and sold products shifting to being a service business, okay? And so that doesn't mean tacking on some aftermarket service and, and trying to like incrementally focus a bit more on that, but really redefining the role of the business to be a business that delivers outcomes to its customers. Um, and those outcomes combine both the products it's historically manufactured and a whole host of, of services that um, kind of complete that offering. But the idea of servitization is applicable really in, in any industry. So, you know, when we talk about a service-based business, so um, we, we talk more about the evolution of moving toward outcomes-based service. And that's really this idea of customers demanding more, right? So, you know, where it used to be acceptable that, you know, it would be, I need X thing, when can you come install it? Or I have a problem, when can you come fix it? You know, there is a, a greater expectation for um, outcome, often guaranteed outcome, guaranteed uptime or um, experience, right? And looking at the service aspect of a business as a way to create an experience for customers that sets you apart from your competition. 
So, you know, it's very, it, it's, it's kind of funny because unfortunately I had to, I'd say, unfortunately I had to go to the Apple store yesterday because I'm, I'm having a power issue with my, my Mac, but to be honest with you, the experience, right. Of, of, of booking a genius bar appointment, the interaction with the associates there was actually great. Mm-hmm. And, and as you were talking about servitization, my first thought went to that just because it's so fresh in my mind, but I also thought about the importance that the associates in the Apple store plays like everybody talks mm-hmm. about the layout and clean all that, all that design, the design elements that go into it. But we often forget that the associates are really that touch point, right? And the crux of that experience. So I'd love to kind of talk, you know, twist this back a little bit to say, you know, you talk about servitization, and you talk about, okay, if these expectations are changing, right, and we're shifting the mindset of what service can be for our business, then obviously the role of those individuals, the frontline workers servicing customers changes pretty drastically, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, going back to the first question, I mean, that is one of the biggest factors in the sea of change, right? And so um, I think there's this objective you know, within um, the overarching trend. So again, regardless of industry, for the the frontline worker to be perceived less as a, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It, right? Less as someone who just shows up and and does this thing and then leaves. Um, And more as a trusted advisor, right? And more as, as someone that builds a genuine relationship with customers that um, engages, that converses, that provides valuable insight, that is, um, you know, creating a good experience. So the same way that when you walk into the Apple store and you leave, you know, thinking like, oh, that was actually pretty cool. Um, There's no reason that across industries that type of experience shouldn't be provided in the homes of people or in, in, you know, the the business um, settings that some uh, companies might do service in. So um, what that means, though, is that the the demands of the frontline worker, um, often the personality types of the frontline worker, the they're changing, right? And so there's a greater emphasis on soft skills uh, and and how important that is. There's um, this idea that, you know, rather than just being hands-on, you know, they're they're more um, insightful to the customers and to the company, right? So we talked about, you know, tapping into that resource of um, using the frontline to understand what it is your customers want and need, right? So it's, it's, a whole change in terms of, you know, what was very much a transactional type role to being something that is um, a more strategic uh, role um, and and plays a bigger part in developing relationships and feeding insight back into the business and, you know, creating those experiences. So now we've got, like you said, we've got this idea of we need, we're kind of changing maybe the profile of our workers, or at least the role, right? And their mm-hmm. responsibilities and how their behaviors in a lot of ways. But at the same time, that, that is being compounded, right? By an aging workforce in a lot of these industries, by potential labor shortages, mm-hmm. right? That are happening. So how do companies then achieve that 
goal with all of these other things, you know, coming together? Mm-hmm. How do they, how do they go and find, you know, so if we take, for example, the existing, the, the, the existing workforce, mm-hmm. right? How do you kind of train that workforce, right? With a new mindset in a, in a new role, right? Becoming more of that strategic advisor. And then mm-hmm. how do you get, you know, additional workers, you know, to kind of backfill as needed? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's, there's a <laughs> list of things I need to bring up and I'm just trying to make sure I go in order. So the first thing is a recognition that if you are trying to do things differently than you've done before, something has to change, right? So one of the biggest mistakes is that a company has this initiative to you know, move to outcomes or to create more experiences or to servitize, but they're not changing anything about the frontline worker, right? And so that's a big disconnect, right? So I think the first thing is just an awareness that if the intended outcome is different, that needs to be communicated, it needs to be clear, it needs to be understood, there needs to be training involved. Um, And you have to understand that perhaps not everyone in place is going to be up to that task, right? And so um, the first thing to talk about is, so how do you make some of that change with your existing workforce? Okay, so like I said, you need to clearly articulate what it is you're you're looking for and how that might differ from, you know, the historical role. Um, you need to look at willingness and and understand, you know, who within your existing workforce is is up to the task and who might want to opt out. Um, you need to make sure you're able to. Um, set uh, clear expectations for performance, what that looks like, how you'll measure it, um, and you know how they'll be compensated if, if things are, are really changing. Um, and then you need to provide, for the people that are on board, you, know, you need to provide them um, the opportunity to reskill and upskill, right? And so you need to look at training and enablement and um, you know, all of those things. Um, one of the things that, that I've uh, seen companies um, starting to do a bit more as you look at this evolution is starting to kind of tier service work so that you can kind of separate out some of the, the foundational core break fix transactional type things that still need to get done with some of the more sophisticated soft skills based trusted advisor type things that you're trying to bring into existence. And by tiering that, um, you know, it allows you to match your existing workforce better to what they might be willing to do. In some instances, I've talked with companies that are focusing on upskilling their existing workforce to be the trusted advisor while outsourcing some of that foundational work that's more transactional to um, contract workers. Um, and then it also gives you some visibility into what you need to seek, um, you know, beyond your existing workforce. So then when you shift gears and talk about, so how do we hire, right? So how do we, how do we hire new work workers that are going to fit the vision for where the company is going? Um, number one, I think that Generally speaking, um, service organizations are quite lazy when it comes to recruiting. 
most of them are accustomed to hiring based on experience. And so they're um, putting out uh, job postings that, you know, they want three years, five years, 10 years of experience in that specific industry. And the reality is, I mean, that experience is becoming extinct, right? It's aging out of the workforce. And so we need to become more creative about where we look for um, the next generation of, of frontline worker. And so, you know, I think that's the first hurdle is understanding that um, you need to start setting yourself up to seek skills and traits and personality fit and be willing to train for experience um, versus, you know, expecting that, that you'll be able to go out and get people in the door that already know what they're doing. Are, are you seeing companies making that shift today or are they still stuck in the old model when thinking about hiring? I think a lot are still stuck in the old model. You know, I think that, um, again, this is sort of a layer of complexity that you can, you can introduce a lot of new strategy and you can start evolving a lot of things before you realize like, oh, you know, so where are we going to recruit and hire from? And if we're running out of people that just, you know, have experience in this industry and, or we have new role requirements that those people wouldn't fit anyway, um, then where can we, where can we find them? And so I think it's a matter of, um, really understanding, uh, we did a, a really good podcast with um, a woman named Bonnie Anderson, who heads recruiting for Tetra Pak. Um, and she talked about this idea of skills-based recruiting. And so part of that is looking into, you know, if you had required X years of experience, you need to be able to translate that into what did you, what did you really need? You know, so experience aside, what did that experience give these people that that is actually required for the job? And then look for different ways to, to go out and seek that. Yeah. So it's looking toward the ultimate attributes we need for these mm -hmm. these workers. Yeah. How does how does technology play a role in that upskilling in helping, you know, accelerate perhaps that that knowledge, either knowledge transfer, mm -hmm. you know, in some cases, not even knowledge transfer, it's just new, um, new training and, and new capabilities. Mm -hmm. How do you see, I mean, because often we see technology being pushed down to the front line that is about, hey, this is stuff you need to know, so we can get visibility into what's happening, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But in, in this case, technology, you know, if, if I'm if I'm listening to you correctly, technology can become a tool in many ways mm -hmm. to help accelerate some of that, that change for those workers. Right. Yeah. So it's actually the opposite of what you just said. We've thought of technology as a way for us to have visibility into what the frontline is doing. And we really need to think more about leveraging technology yep. to give the frontline visibility into whatever it is they need to know to do what they need to do on site. Right. And so a lot of that is, um, you know, knowledge capture and transfer, transfer knowledge management is, is imperative. Right. So they're, there is this issue of as you have workers retiring, um, have you captured any of the the you know years and years of experience that they have? Um, and and if if so, great. How are you leveraging it? If not, how can you do that? Right. Um, and making that knowledge available to new workers in a way that is easy to access, easy to put to use. Um, 
combined with, you know, really easy access into customer history, right? And so you can't have this, um, this fragmented visit where, you know, someone shows up, they don't know what the customer did last time. They don't, you know, there's all these unanswered questions, you know, they need to have all of the insights available to them to, um, you know, to be able to uh, not only resolve a problem, but to, to seem as knowledgeable as you want them to seem about that customer's, you know, um, landscape, about being able to maybe make recommendations or have an insightful conversation about, you know, the services you're providing. Um, and so, you know, that customer history and easy access to that data is super important. Um, knowledge management and being able to easily access and make use of knowledge that can help them on site is important. Uh, and the other um, thing that, that we've seen companies uh, doing quite a bit is leveraging um, tools like augmented reality to mm -hmm. really speed the pace of um, you know, getting these, these new employees, particularly if they don't have prior experience um, to the level where, you know, they're comfortable. So maybe you have a situation where you have a technician that is near retirement, they don't really want to be out traveling site to site anymore. And so, you know, perhaps they can sit in a, in a back office or at home and, um, you know, use augmented reality to, hands-on um, mentor or train, you know, five, six, seven newer folks, right? And so um, those are just a, a couple of examples, but there's a lot of ways that it can serve as an enable, enabler to get these employees the knowledge they need to do what needs done on site, which again leads us back to this idea of if that's true, then if we're not hiring for experience, what are we hiring for? Okay, so if we can find ways to leverage technology to make this knowledge more accessible, to provide sort of hands-on oversight remotely so that you know someone can walk them through a transactional fix of something, what are the skills that you need to evolve um, these relationships to that trusted advisor level? And how is that different than what you've sought in your frontline workforce historically? Yeah, I, it's this is a fascinating discussion because it's definitely a a pretty significant mind shift for most companies. It's certainly mm -hmm. a a complex challenge to solve, but but it's one that they are facing and they have to do. So mm -hmm. I think it's uh it's, it's great, Sarah. Before we wrap um, mm -hmm. today, I, I def you know one of the things we like to talk about on the program is just kind of the the, you know, your pathway and, and kind of what you've learned and, and you alluded to it earlier, right? You kind of started Field Technologies Magazine, um, you know, when that was just print, right? I'm sure at the time, right? And, mm -hmm. and now, you know, you never thought you'd kind of stay and now you're a field technologies field service expert. So, mm -hmm. you know, what have you learned along your pathway like that, that can help some of our listeners as they're kind of going through this, this pathway to innovation? Um, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just the power of being inquisitive, you know, um, and asking questions um, and, you know, seeking not to respond, but to understand, um, you know, I'm super lucky that that a big part of my job is, is you know, interviewing people for a podcast and, and having conversations with 
um, with folks about their challenges. Um, and, and there's just, there's a lot of power in um, asking the next layer of question, right? And, and to really seek to understand, you know, and, and so relating that to a frontline worker, I mean, don't be afraid to, to speak up. Don't be afraid to ask why. Why are we doing this? Why is this the process? Why are you introducing X, right? Um, and, you know, just recognize the value in your own voice um, and understand that uh, we all have, you know, unique perspective and unique gifts that we bring to the table. And, um, you know, a company, any company is more powerful when it harnesses the, the unique um, skill sets of all of its workers and brings that together to really drive innovation. So um, if you're leading an organization, make sure you understand um, the importance of everyone's voice. And if you are on the front line, you know, don't be afraid to, to speak up and, and speak out and, you know, um, know the, the value of, of your perspective. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, so, you know, you spent you know, your career at this point, probably not intending to being, you know, working in techno in the technology field and surrounded by it. So I like to ask this question of our guests as well, which is what are, what do you love about working in technology and what do you hate about it? Mm -hmm. um, I love the fast pace. Um, I think it's really exciting that there's, you know, there's always something new. There's this you know, huge move toward um, businesses becoming more agile and, and not in terms of software development necessarily, but just in terms of mindset and in terms of being nimble and, and being adept at, you know, um, adjusting to different situations and circumstances. And, and I find that really interesting and exciting. Um, I think what I hate about it, and it probably goes back to my psychology roots, is that, um, technology is not that powerful on its own, right? And so all too often it is put on a pedestal as the be all and end all to some of these um, problems or challenges. And, you know, there can be a disregard for all of the other things culturally, psychologically, um, individually, you know, that, that come into play to really have it um, make its intended impact. And so, you know, that's why I like to talk about those things. That's awesome. And, and so um, I think this is probably a good place to wrap up, Sarah, but before we do, I'd love to, where can people um, hear the podcast and find uh, the future of, of, of field service stuff? Yeah. So futureoffieldservice.com is the website. Um, that's where the articles are posted. The podcasts live there. They're also available on any of the major podcast platforms. You would just search future of field service. Um, we have a LinkedIn page. So uh, check us out there and, and follow along. Um, and, you know, obviously anyone can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. That's awesome. And definitely check that out. That's some really good stuff. Great content on there. Uh, Sarah, really appreciate you joining today. This has been a great conversation. I'm sure we could keep speaking for another 45 minutes uh, ongoing and, and maybe we'll speak again soon. So uh, again, thank you so much for sharing your, your thoughts with our, our audience today. Thanks for having me, Gina. It was a pleasure. 
So I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. If so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. And just a reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. You can visit the Skillful website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. See you on our next episode.